We are completing our series today in the book of Micah. We've, been, we've named this series Love Gives because over the last seven weeks or so, we've been looking at various ways that God gives to his people because of his love for them. But if we're honest with ourselves, so often what God in his love gives us can be kind of hard to stomach, isn't it? God loves his people so much that he gives them discipline. He gives them prophets who tell them hard words. He gives them salvation, but so often it's a salvation that they, that they don't expect. And maybe it's a salvation that they don't even think that they need. Love gives, but so often what love gives is a tough love. And really, the, the people of Israel that Micah was speaking to here, they needed that tough love because Israel was a complete mess. One of the kings during the time that Micah was prophesying actually sacrificed his own son on an altar to a pagan god. These people were rebelling against God. They were abusing each other. Israel was a wreck. And so yes, God hates the sin. He's angry with his people. He punishes sin. But that punishment, that anger, is not the last word. And here at the end of Micah, we come to this beautiful, soaring depiction of the restoration that God promises to give his people. It's such a beautiful word, such a beautiful passage. And this is the, the point for us today. Love gives restoration because God is faithful to his people. So before we get started jumping into this passage, let me pray for us. Who is a God like you, O God, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? You do not retain your anger forever because you delight in steadfast love. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. We praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> So some of you might be aware that even as I'm speaking, the final for the Men's World Cup is going on. Are you aware? Yeah, don't check your phones. It's okay. So if there's any time to start a sermon with a sports illustration, right, today's the day. So, so let's talk about Argentina, shall we? The Argentinian men's team came into the World Cup as heavy favorites. They have one of the greatest players ever to play the sport in Lionel Messi. They have a great supporting cast around him. But in the first match of the World Cup, disaster struck. You remember this? This, no, this team that nobody had given a second thought to that was lucky just to be playing in the tournament at all, Saudi Arabia, actually beat the mighty Argentinians 2-1. And all of a sudden, the Argentinian team was teetering on the, on the brink elimination. The hopes of Argentina, perhaps the hopes of an entire country, perhaps an entire continent, needed to be restored. And so all eyes started to look at one player, at Lionel Messi. And what did Lionel Messi do? He didn't stand on the sideline, he didn't pull himself out, he didn't say, you know what, I think I need to be the coach now. He didn't, you know, lob critiques. What he did was he played, and he played brilliantly for the next 
several games, dashing and scoring and assisting and leading his team all the way to playing right now. Yes, right now. Lionel Messi restored the hopes of Argentina by giving them himself. He restored them by giving them himself. Now, it's a silly illustration. I get it. Like sports just inevitably are silly illustrations. <laughs> but Israel here, in a much more serious way, needed to be restored. And so they were looking to God to restore them. And how does God restore them? God doesn't stand on the sidelines and start lobbing critiques. He doesn't start barking more commands. God comes to his people and restores his people by giving them himself. And that is what this passage is depicting for us. The way that God comes to his people and restores his people by giving them himself. This passage walks us through this. It shows us that God restores his people by giving them his purity in order to bring them into his presence all because he is faithful to his promises. He gives them his purity in order to bring them into his presence, all because of his promises. So let's look at this passage together. Let's start at verse 8. Here we have Micah speaking in the voice of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is speaking to her enemies. Now what is she saying? She's saying that they will defeat her, because in fact, in about 150 years, maybe a little bit less, Jerusalem will be completely destroyed by the Syrian army. But she doesn't just stop there. She says actually why, why she will be destroyed. And it's not because she lacks a strong enough army. It's not because she doesn't have good enough strategic sense to get out of the way of this, this army. The reason that Jerusalem is destroyed is because of their sin. Look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation the wrath of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. Jerusalem, Israel, people of God, sinned. This is their problem. This is why they will be destroyed. This is why the army of Assyria will run over them. But they know that this is not the end of their story. So look at the hope that they have. Their hope is that God will actually come to them. Look at verse 8. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. They may sit in darkness, but God himself will come to them and will be their light. Look at, look at verse 9 again. I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This is the language of a lawsuit. This is legal language. The idea is that God will prosecute the case of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has just acknowledged that they don't have much of a case, do they? They have sinned. They are justly under the condemnation of God. So what is their hope? Look at the end of verse 9. It's that they will look upon God's Indication. They will look upon God's righteousness. That God himself will come to them and will actually give them his own righteousness. 
his own purity so that they will be cleansed from the purity, from the impurity and defilement of their own sin and receive the purity and the righteousness of God himself. Here we have Micah foreshadowing what Christ does on the cross. Because on the cross, Christ died for his people. And he took on himself the sins of his people so that his people would then have his righteousness. So the righteousness of Christ would be what marks and covers his people. God himself will come and restore his people by giving his people his own purity. So how, do we, how should we respond to this? I think here this passage shows us that we should respond by repenting and being baptized. It's really remarkable here what, what Jerusalem is doing here, isn't it? They are confessing, I have sinned. I have sinned. And this is one of the most central and important parts of what it looks like to repent. To confess that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. There can be no restoration without this confession of sin. That's so important for us to do. But then look next at the pattern here of what Jerusalem is going through. They fall, but then they shall rise. They sit in darkness, but then God himself as light comes to them. Here Israel is walking in a pattern that marks the entirety of the Christian life. I mean, it marks our life because it's what marked the life of Jesus. There is no resurrection without death. There's no life until after the cross. And so Israel here, Jerusalem here, they're not going into purgatory. They're not paying for their own sins. Rather, they are dying here to their sin. They are dying to their sinful inclination so that God can then give them new life in himself, new, pure, righteous life. We actually see this in baptism. We're going to have a baptism in a few minutes. And baptism is where we are baptized into the death of Christ, so that by faith we can then rise with him to new life. And this pattern of baptism of being lowered into the water and then coming out again to new life is what should mark our entire lives, not just these children at the time of their baptism, but our entire lives should be marked by dying to sin, so that we can then live to God in righteousness. So how do we respond? We need to repent and we need to be baptized. So God first gives his people his purity, and we should respond by repenting and being baptized. But second, he does all of this in order to draw them into his presence. This is verses 11 through 17. Look here with me. Mikey here, uh, he shifts out of the voice of Jerusalem and is, starts prophesying about the future. And he starts to weave together three different images, in a sense, of the history of Jerusalem and the history of Israel. In verses 11 through 13, he's prophesying about the future restoration of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be destroyed, but he's looking forward, looking ahead to the day when Jerusalem will actually be rebuilt. But it will be rebuilt in, in a greater way than it was before. See, the, the people of Israel, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's like a bomb goes off, and they just get scattered. 
to the ends of the earth. They go primarily to Assyria, some go down into Egypt, but they just get scattered all over the world from sea to sea, mountain to mountain. But here Micah is foreseeing the people of Israel returning to Jerusalem and the walls being rebuilt further out to accommodate the throngs of people who are returning to Jerusalem. So this is the first image, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The second image is the exodus and the conquest of the land. Look at verse 14. Here, Micah is praying to God, asking that God would bring his people back into the land. And he uses this image of, of Bashan and Gilead, which are kind of obscure places in a sense. But in a way, they're like the Lexington and Concord of American history, only for Israel's history. Lexington and Concord, right, they were places of some of the earliest victories in the American Revolution. They sort of set the tone, sort of remarkable victories for scrappy American revolutionaries over the mighty British Empire. Well, Bashan and Gilead were actually places of some of the earliest conquests for the people of Israel as they were coming into the Promised Land. So Micah here is looking forward to a time when they're returning into the Promised Land like they did the first time. And to make this clear, in verse 15, he, he compares it to when they came out of Egypt. The days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. God brought his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and then into the promised land. So that's the second image. The third is actually the Garden of Eden. And we see a hint of this in verse 14, where he compares the promised land to a garden who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. But to make this a little bit clear, he actually compares their enemies to a serpent. Look at verse 17. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. Israel here is returning to the promised land that will be like, in some ways, like the Garden of Eden, only with the serpent, the great enemy of God's people, defeated. Thoroughly defeated. That's the third image, coming into the garden. So what do we do with these images, right? You have the rebuilding of Jerusalem, coming back into the promised land, the garden of Eden. What do all these things have, have in common? They have in common the presence of God. That's what they share. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God brought his people into the promised land, a holy land where God would live with his people. And he would live with his people. The locus of that presence of God's people would be in Jerusalem, in the temple. So here he's depicting the restoration of God's people as coming back into God's presence, dwelling with God. And the reality is there can be no restoration without being in the presence of God. This is such good news. God himself is light and life and love itself. And so when we leave God's presence, we're going into death and darkness and hate. If we want to experience fullness of life, if we want to experience light and life and love, we have to come into the presence of God. This is how the world works. This is how God created us to be, to come into his presence. So how should we respond well, look at verse 14. Mike here is giving us a really useful model. He's praying, he's interceding on behalf of Israel. 
that God would shepherd his people back into his presence, back into the promised land, even using his staff to guide them back to himself. Do you pray for this? Do you pray that God would bring you into his presence? Do you pray for God's people that he would bring all of us together into his presence? Friends, there is no greater prayer that we can pray than that God would pull us into his presence. So we should respond by praying that God would bring us into his presence. So when God restores his people, he first gives them his purity. He brings them into his presence, which we should respond to by praying and begging God that he would do this. And then third, he does all this because of his promises. This is verses 18 through 20. Here, Micah is, is breaking into song, celebrating the mercy and grace of God. But this mercy and grace raises the question, why would God be so merciful? Why would he do that? And he answers this question in verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers, from the days of old. Micah here is invoking these promises that God made generations ago to the patriarchs of his people. God promised Abraham, and he promised his children, that he would make a great people out of their descendants, and that these people would be a blessing to the whole world. And so Micah here is looking at these promises and saying, God, you will be faithful to these promises. So we can hope, we can hope in your faithfulness, we can hope in your mercy, because you are faithful. You are faithful to your promises. Our God is a righteous God. He hates our sin. But his righteousness also means that he is faithful to his word. When he promises to do something, he will do it. He will not cast off his people forever. He will not cast them off forever. And because of this faithfulness, we see the, the, the tender fierceness of God in this passage. He, God defeats the enemies in order to bring his people back to himself. Look at verse, at verse 19. He will tread our iniquities Underfoot, which is a striking image because he used almost exactly the same image back in verse 10, where, our, where Jerusalem's enemies will be trampled down. God here is like a mother bear that's been separated from her cubs and who will go to no end to bring her cubs back to herself. She will go to no end. Not even the sin of God's people can separate them from God. This is profoundly good news. So how should we, how should we respond to this? Well, we should, we should respond by celebrating. And this is one of the biggest things that we celebrate in Christmas, isn't it? Because during Advent and Christmas time, we are looking back so often on the promises that God made in the Messiah, in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're looking back at the promises that God made to send a Savior, promises that he fulfilled on Christmas morning. So we celebrate that, and we praise him, just like Micah is praising God here. Do you feel the energy? Do you feel the emotion? Do you feel the crescendo in these verses? 
who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah cannot help but break into song to praise God for the mercy that he is pouring out and that he will pour out on his people. Friends, can we do anything different? When we look on Christ, we look on the exact same faithfulness that Micah is celebrating here. So can we do anything but praise him? Praise him. Praise him for the fact that he's a God who restores his people. And he restores us by giving us himself. He gives us our own purity. He gives us his own purity, rather. He gives us his purity to draw us into his presence because he promised that he would keep a people for himself. Friends, with Micah, let's praise God together. Amen.